Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now I'm ever so happy to be here. I, I, I don't know what to say about this, but uh, perhaps you've heard of me. My, my name is uh, Hugh Grant. I'm an actor. Uh, I was in last week's film that was done on this particular podcast, um, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Uh, it was not my choice for a title, of course. I, I suggested Three Weddings, a Funeral, and uh, a Wake, uh, but the director uh, thought it would be a bit um, too... Uh, depressing but uh it's it's ever so nice to be here um i i just want you to know that these fellas are they're absolutely smashing guys uh i met them uh, uh we've hung out on hollywood boulevard uh, many times uh, we've J- met some ladies together jason um, did he get the script or did he did he does he know that i they're... don't know what he's doing okay. but w- 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 the, the, the point is that this is an absolutely wonderful show and uh uh, uh, uh james and brandon will be absolutely uh uh, stoked, I believe is the nomenclature, to uh, present their podcast to you for Cream and Scunny. All right, I, I have to leave now. Uh, I, 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 have some, I have some ladies to uh, be absolutely charming and befuddled with. Goodbye. I gotta say, I, I, I'm not gonna clap for that. Uh, no, I, I, I can't. I mean, I, I mean, he's lovely. He was him. He, he's lovely. He but was him, absolutely. But well, I mean, he didn't get her names right. For cream and scummy. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how he thought that was even a real thing. Like, how what, did what he is, know? I mean, he, yeah, that's not a real thing. Did he think what? we were like we were doing a podcast specifically about like the top part that separates in milk products, and that we would just <laughs> kind of skim off the top? And maybe that's what he thought for for, for cream and skimmy. Yeah, because we've only uh, we've only like talked about that together that hmm. we were about that podcast we're launching. Yeah, so yeah. I don't know yeah. how he. Found I don't know that. how he knew about it. I mean, maybe he got a preview. We did send that tape out to uh, out to uh, Alec Guinness's family, and uh, we never heard back from them. So maybe it got redirected to Hugh Grant. Oh no, I did get something back from them. Uh, they said never send us another letter. Uh, got two words: cease and desist. Yeah, the and doesn't count as one of the two words. No, no, uh, uh, that's what they call in the business a freebie. A freebie. All right. Well, that has nothing to do with today, this week. But let's, let's... Get, let's get back on topic, Brendan. This is a podcast. It's yes. not called for cream and scummy. No. It's called for screen. And country. And I am Brendan. No, I'm Jason. We're not Brandon and James. No. Or Bartles and James. No. And this is a podcast about film. Ah. British film. Yes. British. More specifically, the top 100 British films of all time, according to the British Film Institute, as composed in 1999, the year of our Lord. 1999. The year of our Lord. The best year. Yes. The uh, last time that was the last time things were real was 1999. You know why? That's the year the Matrix came out, and we all realized what was going on. What if I told you there was a world where British films stopped? There is. It's called for screen and country. Dun dun dun. But this <laughs> longest intro ever. Yep. This week, uh, before we get into our film, 
We need to talk about last week's film, Four Weddings and a Funeral. We had comments. We had questions? Mostly comments. Comments, okay. I'm gonna Why go do ahead. people ask us questions about this movie? I'm uh, dumb. Well, we're not the we're not the experts. Well, I mean, kind of. I mean, you did graduate cum laude from Four Weddings and a Funeral University oh. in Dallas, Texas. You might say I graduated Semper cum laude. Oh. Yeah. Uh, well, we got com- we got comments. We got comments. All right. So the first one is very quick. It's just a. It's just a. You know, she likes this movie. She's, okay. Uh, from Kate Littleton. She says, "I love Wait, this." Kate one. Middleton. <laughs> Littleton. Oh. oh, okay. I was gonna say. Uh, I thought we had a bigger fan, but I'm sure she's wonderful. She is wonderful, and she. But might, she's not married to a prince. I would assume. She may as well be a princess. Oh, okay. I'll just say that. All right. Well, we'll let it. We'll let she it is great. And she said, I love this one. I find the leads to be so charming. Which, the reason I say that is because later we'll get into a little bit of the opposite viewpoint of Andy McDowell. They're very charming, uh, yes. So I asked everyone about their Hugh Grantheon, mm-hmm. as in their, your Pantheon. <laughs> and uh, Maria Johnson Dietz ranks her Hugh Grantheon as this. At number one, about a boy. Mm-hmm. At number two, four weddings and a funeral. Mm-hmm. At number three, a movie called Sirens. At P. What? With a P? Like sirens? <laughs> no, just sirens. Oh, like okay. the, the the ladies who drown sailors. Yeah, okay. Uh, number four, Bridget Jones's Diary. And she said, the worst one is nine months. Surely he's been in more than five movies. No, these are just the oh, ones that okay. she's seen, I think. <laughs> I asked Notting Hill, and she's like, oh yeah, that's probably yeah. like five. Mickey Blue Eyes, was that a movie he was in? <laughs> it sure was. Yep. Uh, what did Adam Pellman have to say? Adam Pellman said, I really love this one. Hugely influential, but never surpassed by any of the wave of British rom-coms that followed. It's the supporting cast that really makes this one shine, especially the blustery but endearing Simon Callow. And I'm always moved by the quietly devastating arc of Kristen Scott Thomas's character. Me too. I feel you, man. Plus, the wedding scene with Rowan Atkinson as the blundering, nervous clergyman is absolutely hilarious. You can't go wrong with Rowan Atkinson in just about anything, Brennan. Nope. Even his bad movies, he's still pretty good. I don't know what you're talking about. Johnny English is a perfect <laughs> film. It's a trilogy. It's, it's basically, you know, when people are talking about, when people talk about the original trilogy, that's yeah, what they're talking that's about. That's what O-T. O-T-J-E. Yeah, you know me. <laughs> Sharon Horwath says, I do remember liking this movie and Hugh Grant. However, I think Paddington 2 is still his best performance. That's actually, actually sounds like it might be a joke. It is totally not a joke. Paddington 2 was one of the best movies of last year. I have not seen it, but everything I have heard has led me to believe that, and I would like to watch it at some point. It is wonderful, and if there was a, a redo or an update of this list, I feel like that one would be on it, even though it's a sequel. Was I've... Mr. Grant in the first Paddington? No. Was Hugh Laurie in the first Paddington? No, no. Hugh Laurie was in Stuart Little, so he would probably fit in Paddington. There you go. What if, what if Paddington and Stuart Little were friends? This is this is why we don't run a major studio, Jason. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> now, here's the opposite Andy McDowell thing. Uh, Marcy Rodenborn said, "This could be a, be a this could be a best film with the worst female performance." Andy, is it raining? I hadn't noticed. McDowell. <laughs> we kind of talked about that scene a little yeah. bit last uh, last week, but yeah, I, I don't know if I would say this is the worst performance ever. I mean, she's not. I I don't think she's maybe necessarily tuned for this movie, but I mean, I like Andy McDowell, and she's good in some movies. But maybe this wasn't her. Maybe this wasn't her big one. You know? Yeah, like, I hadn't noticed. But also that line. That's all. I don't know that anybody could deliver that line and it, make it sound good. I think we kind of said too that the last scene is kind of eh. Like the the way they wrap things up is a little iffy. But I mean, it's a little too tight of a bow on it. I'd it's, say it's it's a little it's a little studio ish. Yeah. yeah. 
Mm. Well, Some executive talk- wanted to fuck his wife, and that's what she wanted, was the, there to be a happy ending to this movie. <laughs> well, let's talk about the final scene. What did Charlie Chap have to say about the final Charlie scene? Charlie Chaplin. No, just Charlie Chap. Oh, I was going to say, because Chaplin's been dead a long no, time. No, Charlie Chaplin's dead. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, okay. Charlie Chap says, I think it's an excellent film, but this is always the first thing I think about when I remember it. Even so, it's so much better than the moment of Andy's performance, which I think is okay for most of the film, but just the worst in what's the pivotal scene. Though, to be fair, I don't think that the scene is particularly well written. I agree, Charlie. That's, it's, yeah, it's not a well written scene. She does the best with what she has, but, you know, you can only do so much. Given the rest of the movie, I'd say that's okay that that doesn't work so well. Because the rest of the movie's pretty darn good. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not an ending that, like, you know, kind of carries... It's not It's not a Shyamalan movie where if the ending is terrible, you kind of forget how yeah. mediocre the rest of the movie was. And, and it's it's not an ending that gets thrown into, like, Oscar uh, montages of great film moments. It's not like... Is oh, it raining? I hadn't noticed. Yeah, it's, it's not like, I'll have what she's having. Uh, it's raining. I didn't notice. That's <laughs> right up there. It's yeah. the same level. Shay Casey says... Uh, I, IMO, that's in my opinion for ah. all, for those of you not in the know. Hugh Grant became much better when he dropped the charming befuddled act and just leaned into being a handsome cad. Did he? Well, this happened in the Bridget Jones slash About a Boy time frame. Oh my goodness. Uh, About a Boy is probably my favorite role of his. I'm not sure anyone else could have played it. That's from Shea Casey. That movie apparently was good enough they made a TV show out of it. That's unfortunate, but the movie is very good. Okay. And Nicholas Holt is still doing his thing. Who's Nicholas Holt? He was in the newer X-Men movies as Beast. Mm-hmm. He was in The Favorite, which just came out last year. Okay, you got to go back a bit. Uh, oh, man, he's in a lot. Was he in any science fiction films? Next next comment. Oh, okay. Uh, let's see, what do we got? Um, last one here. The last one on our list says, It doesn't... Uh, Thomas Humphreys... Ah, Mr. Humphreys. Hello, I'm free. Mr. Humphreys says, Oh, it doesn't hold up in part because I feel like that foppish you grant just feels weak and dated in hindsight. Ooh, he gets much better... Uh, ooh, he gets much better and sophisticated, e.g. Bridget Jones or About a Boy. Andy McDowell is awful in this movie. Mm. And when you see that she was nominated alongside Pulp it, Fiction... It was nominated. No, it was she nominated. wasn't nominated. She wasn't nominated, but it was nominated alongside Pulp Fiction for Scump, Shawshank, and the Quiz Show. It's like a different species. Mm, I'm free. You glad you made that joke? Are you I proud did, of yourself? yes. I'm very happy. John Inman, wherever you are, rest in peace. <laughs> All right, well... Now that that's now that that is uh, all said and done, Jason, what is the number equivalent on the AFI list? So four weddings and a funeral was number twenty three, and number twenty three on the AFI is nineteen forties The Grapes of Wrath. Ah, interesting. I have I've not seen The Grapes of Wrath, nor have I read the book. I've read East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Exit to Eden, a... starring Rosie O'Donnell. No. Okay. Uh, uh, John Stein that that John Steinbeck book is lesser known that yes. that was based on. But but <laughs> East of Eden is a that very was, good book. That was during his bondage period. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, no, I've not seen The Grapes of Wrath. It's funny. This actually came up yesterday with my girlfriend and I because we were talking about how we don't really know much about the Dust Bowl, and we're going to have to watch Grapes of Wrath at some point to get an idea, uh, as well as maybe read some books. Books. Yeah. This is not the Book Film Institute podcast. Well, we're working on it. We're working on that podcast. Me and Paul Shear doing the Book Institute podcast. <laughs> Who the hell is Paul Shear? I don't know. Okay. Just some guy with no hair. He'll fit well with me. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, this is another stumper for me, too, because I've also never seen The Grapes of Wrath, so I'm going to give it to Four Weddings and a Funeral, the movie I've seen. The best way to win, by default. <laughs> All right, Jason. Okay, Brendan. Let's get into it. Let's talk about our movie this week. Okay. 
Number 18 on the list. That's the one. Henry V. Oy vey. So, Jason, we're talking about Henry V. 1944's Henry V. This is, a, by like 20 years, this is our old, uh, no, sorry. By about 13 years, yeah, because Bridge on the River Kwai was 57. 1957. This is our oldest movie we've done so Thus far. Thus far. It's not the oldest one on the list. No. Uh, is that the 39 Steps, or is there something uh, older than that? It's either that or Goodbye Mr. Chips. Okay. There's like, they're in the 30s. All right. Uh, written... By William Shakespeare. Originally, yes. Yes. I believe adapted by Laurence Olivier. With input from the Prime Minister, but we'll get to that. <laughs> Directed by Laurence Olivier. Directed. Starring Laurence Olivier. A passion project. And also Renee Asherby mm-hmm. as uh, Princess Catherine. Yes. Leslie Banks <laughs> as, as plays the chorus. I swear I saw John Colicos in there, but I think he would have been too young uh, to be in this movie or alive. Honestly, maybe. if you're not like a huge Shakespeare or Olivier fan, the only person you know in this movie is Laurence Olivier. Yeah. Let's let's just face it. Not not to di- discount anyone else, but no. he is the selling point for 1944 audiences. Yep. Jason, mm-hmm. it is number 18 on the list. Absolutely. Henry V. What uh, you're gonna have to help me out yep. with this one. What is Henry V? What is it about? What is its essence? All right, so we'll talk about this. So this is, uh, and we'll get into some history stuff too, because this is a historical play. This what? is part. Yes, absolutely. It really happened. Some of it, and um, all of it. This, this, and uh, we'll get into stuff deeper. This is actually a sequel, uh, in a way. This is a uh, part of... Dude, Henry Portrait of a Serial Henry Killer. Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. You've been making that joke all week. It's, <laughs> Not st- to it's the still listeners. funny. Not to the listeners. They don't know. <laughs> this is their first time. It is fresh to their nubile ears. Absolutely. It is. So get your ears ready for we talk about this. So, yeah, it, it's actually kind of... It, it's a sequel of sorts. It's part of what is known as the Henryad, which is uh, Henry the Fourth Part One, Henry the Fourth Part Two, and Henry the Fifth. Um, and characters from Henry the Fourth, Part 1 and 2, do show up in Henry V, and we'll talk about that. But, so the basic story of this, this is about the King Henry, uh, Henry V, as I've said many times. Played by Laurence Olivier. Played by the great Laurence Olivier. Uh, now, this movie opens up with some churchmen discussing the state of affairs. Now, remember, this is a Shakespeare movie, and sometimes it can be hard to parse out the dialogue. As I understand, at least in the play, part of this discussion is about the idea that Henry is looking to pass a law that would divert some of the church funds to his coffers Mm. so so that he could use it to support the military, to give money to the poor, and as well as enrich himself a little bit. And the church doesn't like this very much. No, no. Um, So what they decide to do is to encourage Henry to invade France. So he'll be busy. I think, yeah. Does he kind of already have the idea he in his head? He has that idea in his head because... Uh, and they're like, yeah, you should be king of France. Absolutely. Because through because uh, this is in the in the part of the Hundred Years' War. And there had been talk that... How that, long did that last? Uh, actually, like 116 years oh, on that's, and off. that's false advertising. Yeah, I know. Uh, but there had been discussion of that he had a legitimate claim to the French throne. And there's a whole lot of backflip logic that they went through to get to this point but it really rests on the fact that in french law there's a law that says if you if you're 
I guess names or if your hereditary is passed down through your mother, it's okay, and you can. You I can thought be it king, was, but his. I uh, thought in French law that wasn't okay. It was one of the other. But they, basically, the, the way they worked out is that it, they they figured that because of English law being the way it was, that that meant that it that Charles the Sixth, who was currently on the French throne, his claim was illegitimate. Yeah. So that. Henry had a legitimate claim. Yeah, because so, he had a he had like a great uh, grandmother or something that yeah. was like part of the French. Yeah, like, so monarchy. goes back like Edward the Second. And English Edward law III. said like that makes him legitimate. But yeah. French law said no, no, Monsieur. I mean, it would be very confusing if it were all in like modern speak, but it's extra confusing when it's in Shakespearean. Good lord, we'll get <laughs> into that. So, anyway, so long. So basically, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now we have to remember this is this movie opens up. It's it's in like a, a play style format, so we have it literally staged on a stage at this point in, in the a, movie in the Globe Theater in the Globe Theater taking place in like the 1500s. Absolutely, it's it's like a it's so great. It's such a cool premise, but it doesn't last. But then it comes back to the end of the movie. Anyways, point is we have a kind of a comedic scene where the Archbishop of Canterbury and another uh, a deacon or priest or something bring out a bunch of papers and, and start throwing the papers around and trying to explain to Henry uh, how his claim is valid. And so Henry eventually just accepts that. He thinks that it's, it's good, but he's not sure about it. So they receive a, uh, a message from the Dauphin, who is the heir to the French throne um, and well-known uh, uh, at this time, for sure. He sends a message to King Henry. The French courtiers bring it in, the messenger, and opens up the box with the, this treasure that is for Henry. Treasure. Treasure, indeed. And? But it turns out it's a number of tennis balls. Oh, burn. And it's a reference to Henry's misspent youth, uh, kind of carousing around, playing sports, like not really being, uh, uh, you know, the the most princely guy. Which, if if you have read or seen Henry the Fourth parts one and two, you'll probably see more of uh, Prince Hal uh, being young and, and dumb and full of cum. And if you do not know any of that, then this reference completely goes over your head as did mine. I I learned a lot on this researching this shit. I said, my reaction was, tennis balls are an insult? Is he saying he has no balls? No, it was was mainly just because he was specifically making fun of the fact that he was a bit of a a rogue in his youth. But that, that seals it. Henry's like, fuck it. We're going to France. Exact. Uh, that's actual dialogue, by the way. Fuck it. Fuck it. Fuck it. We're going to France. That's right. So... We get through that scene, we go, the fleet is being loaded at Southampton, uh, um, Henry gives a little speech for everybody, uh, they get on the boats, and they and a lovely shot of a bunch of boats going across the water, they head for Harfleur, which is a town in France, uh, and they decide, that's it, we're going to lay siege to this town, and so we get the famous scene, because this is a famous line from this play, where Henry's on horseback, mm-hmm. and he's, once more under the breach, dear friends, or something like that, once more under the breach. Well, do you want to hear that? Yes, absolutely. Okay, because you requested this clip. Yes. This is a, this it's is a classic. A, this is a request of Fiesta from Jason here. Once more, under the breach, dear friends, once more, or close them all up with our English dead. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. Stiffen the sinews, summon up the blood, disguise fair nature with hard-favored rage. Then lend the eye a terrible aspect, let it pry through the portage of the head like the brass cannon. Let the brow overwhelm it as fearfully as doth a gorded rock, or hang and jutty his confounded base, swilled with a wild and wasteful ocean. 
it's hard to figure out what he's saying, but my God, it sounds so good coming out of his mouth. It's very, he, it's, it's, uh, roughly translates to British. British stuff, yeah. <laughs> he's just saying British stuff over and over. I, I have the, I mean, like, I appreciate that you know some stuff about this, but I'm the fucking <laughs> least qualified person to do this movie. Did not even think about this. I think for the Hamlet episode, I'll just see my way out the door. Yeah. We'll just, we'll, I'll handle this on my own. <laughs> so, yeah, so they, so they take the city of Harfleur after a siege and that is basically their staging area to move on to the t- the village of Azincor with a Z. For some reason in history this is remembered with a G because of Shakespeare but whatever. So they get there and the French are already set up. They've got their camp there. The uh, English they set their camp up as well and they're actually not that far apart. They're probably only like 1,500 meters apart and they can hear the other camp. It is very similar to like the Civil War, American Civil War stuff where you can hear people singing or World War One in the trenches. <laughs> yeah, just singing Dixie. <laughs> Dixieland. Hey Yankee, you got coffee? I got cigarettes. <laughs> Alright, so... Uh, We're all white, ain't that great? Ain't it great? Why are we fighting? Uh, <laughs> We're all the same race, I don't get it. So... Uh, so yeah, so they set up their camp, but but Henry wants to take the temperature of what's going on. So he puts on a hood, which is a great way to disguise yourself. And also in a time where there's not really photographs. I mean, not really. There aren't. Uh, that, you only have etching. So nobody really knows what he looks like if they haven't seen him up close. So uh, This he, part I had problems so with. So he puts on a hood and he wanders around the camp, just kind of taking the temperature of the men, talking to some of the ancillary characters. I believe Corporal Nim shows up and Ancient Pistol, Pistol and... Uh, Fluellen? Bardolph maybe is there. Is Fluellen there? I don't know. I, I don't know who Fluellen is. That's a weird one. <laughs> he's just a... He's a real... Did you make that up? No, I didn't make him up. <laughs> he's the Welsh dude. So he wanders around the camp. He listens to the men. He kind of gets a sense of what's going on. Some people criticize him. Some people support him. Um, but everyone, French and English alike, across the board is giddy for this battle. This is in the middle of the night, and they're waiting for morning, and they are so fucking ready on both sides to go and do this. Um, and it's at this point, too, where the movie... Um, starts to become a little bit more look more like a film. Okay, so what we have to under, what we have to explain about this movie is that this movie is filmed in three specific different styles. The beginning and the end of the movie are filmed as if they're on play. A stage. It's yeah. play as if it's in the Globe Theater, as if you're there in the 1500s yeah. watching a play. watching a play uh, to the point where you'll hear audience reactions and applause and laughter and which things helps. like that, which helps, especially with the comedy trying to figure out what's going on. Oh, that's fun. that's a joke. Okay, the uh, the bulk of the movie is shot in a style that is reminiscent of uh, illuminated medieval manuscripts kind of there's something called the book of hours which was uh, uh there were many different ones in fact each one was unique uh they were very important religiously they had a lot of religious stuff in them but they had these amazing like drawings these colorful crazy drawings and the movie takes its inspiration very directly from that style and it's very cool to behold but by the time we get to the battle because it's a legit battle and i they did not shoot it in agincourt they shot it in ireland but they did shoot it outside and did it really i mean relatively realistically especially in comparison to the previous two styles well there are no fake backdrops no that's the thing all this the when once they start once they switch over to the camp at night yeah they're sets yeah. they're very real sets very and apparently sense. and i also saw a cool picture um maybe i'll put it up on the twitter or something but uh, on the twitter on yeah, the twitter i'm 80 years old <laughs> uh maybe i'll put it up on the twitters but there's a picture of like these guys visiting the set of Henry V, and you actually see these giant beer kegs that they were using to just give to the cast and crew. Nice. Very British. Um, you gotta and keep them happy, right? Yeah, you can see, like, all the tents. So, mm. it's 100%. It's all there. Oh, yeah, and it's and it's a very cool sequence um, that happens. So, the sun rises, they prepare. Henry stands up and gives his famous St. Crispin's Day speech. This is probably the most famous speech from this, uh, this play. 
And I believe Brennan has a clip. Brennan? Yeah, so I have this speech here. The St. Crispian's or... It's St. Crispin's Day, although he says... Uh, Crispian. Crispian Crispus or something. It's using Latin. So this is, a, this is a very famous speech. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, These wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so base, and gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap, while any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day! Fuck yeah. That's a pretty rousing speech. Oh, yes. So basically, I did kind of figure out what he was saying there. Um, yeah. You know, you're in this with me. Yeah. And you're going to, you're going to, this is, the, there are, people are always going to talk about this. Um, I'm sacrificing myself, you're sacrificing yourself, we're all on equal footing. And what a better way to razz your troops by saying, yeah. I'm not like your leader yeah. right now, we're all the same. No, because historically too, it is known, Henry was in the fray. Like, he was he was on the ground with the troops, engaging in personal combat, and that comes up in a little bit. But like, and part of the reason he has to give this speech, this rousing speech, is because the English are severely outnumbered. Now, when I say severely, the, the lowest estimate would be that the English have 9,000 troops and the French have 12,000 troops. That's, you know, that's... 3,000 troops being outnumbered is quite a few. But the biggest estimates say it was about 6 to 1. You're looking at 36,000 French troops to 6,000 English troops. And the English troops, uh, five-sixths of, five of them, according to Wikipedia, are longbowmen. So English and Welsh archers with longbows. Which is which something makes for that the a really cool scene. Yeah, which makes a really cool scene, which the French don't have in the same way. The French army is mostly it's a lot of cavalry, a lot of uh, bread, very heavy cavalry, a lot of a lot of a lot giant of, sticks of bread, giant sticks of bread, weapons. a lot of berets, a lot of cigarettes, a lot of wine, a lot bottles. of stereotypes, yeah, <laughs> a, lot a lot of stereotypes, stereotypes in that army. <laughs> Jerry Lewis, I think, made a cameo. So the, the, I, the this movie's portrayal of the battle isn't completely accurate, but a lot of the details are uh, the number of archers, the fact that the the field is muddy because it's been freshly plowed. Uh, the fact that the, the 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 battlefield itself is hemmed in on by trees, so that the uh, actually I don't know if you actually see that in the movie, but in real life the battlefield was hemmed in by trees, so it was the cavalry could not flank them, so that gave a huge advantage to the English. But so they they get into it, and the the French knights in an amazing shot just fucking these. Um, all these horses all decked out in full livery like with colors and flags and everything doing a charge across the field it's so fucking beautiful but what you have to understand about the time is that the the french knights were already tired because they'd spent you know the good portion of the morning getting into their goddamn armor this plate armor this heavy plate armor uh, we actually see a scene of one being lowered onto the horse with a rope <laughs> like a whole like rope and pulley system uh, maybe the dauphin himself uh, being lowered onto the horse. You mean but, the, is that the same person who uh, talks about his horse as if it was his lover? 
There's a scene like that where he's like, I wish my horse were my mistress. You don't remember uh, that? I don't, I, that I, stuck out to me. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Maybe it was. Um, okay. But so one of the disadvantages the French have in the battle is that so the English have all these archers. They start le- you know, raining arrows down on the French as they're charging, and that starts killing horses. Did you think 300? Yeah, oh, happened. absolutely. 300 must have thought of that scene, or at least, you know, I'm sure Zack Snyder had seen that scene on YouTube or something. It, it's amazing. Like, it's, I mean, it doesn't, I mean, it's, it's amazing. If you put yourself in that time frame, it's amazing. It's cool to look at now. In 1944, in the middle of the war, they were able to pull off that special effect. That's yeah, cool. it literally looks just like a bunch of arrows coming yeah. down. And to me, I mean, it's not the shot where Leonidas is looking up and he sees them coming towards mm-hmm. him, but the, the shot of the arrows going over, up and over in yeah. 300... Very much like this scene. Very much. So so the arrows come raining down. They start hitting the horses and stuff and killing the horses. So the French knights get knocked off their horses. The French knights are in full plate armor in the middle of a muddy quagmire. So they are fucked. The The Dauphin makes the call that they should... Uh, they're, they're, they're not doing well in this battle, the French. And like I say, they have a superior force. They are one of the strongest military powers in the world. And the English are giving them the runaround. So the Dauphin makes an order for them to go attack... In real life, it was a baggage train, but in the movie, it's the the rear encampment of the English, and they go through and they just slaughter everybody that's in there, who are mostly squires. Yeah, like young, young like boys. Kids. Yeah, boys that were the guy. Squires, basically, if you don't know, squires were the the generally you know like boys, like ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen years old, who wanted to be knights themselves, but would help the older knights like get their armor on and basically be like their steward and take care of them, make their meals, things like that. Yeah, no reason they basically have no reason to be wiped out by. Yeah, an no, army. they're they're non-combatants at that point. I mean, they may be knights someday, and you can make that that argument, but you know, so they go through and they slaughter all of them, and then we Henry is enraged by this. This is the first time we see him really angry, other than when the tennis balls. Uh, happen. Yeah. He and he says uh, there's a line where he <laughs> says like uh I have not been angered since I came to France but but now I am basically. It's it's not the exact quote but that's basically what he says. He says I'm fucking mad now. So uh that's the exact quote. So he so that makes him jump into combat and he gets into it with uh, a French uh I think it's described as a French constable. Yeah, did they say <coughs> Did they say who that character is because I He's thought He's one of the French nobles. Okay, so he wasn't like uh, Dauphin or anything like no, that. No, no, okay. but one of the highly placed French nobles. Wait, now the guys that went to like wipe out the the, like, the tent yeah. and kill all those squires were any of those people like characters that we knew? Uh, I feel like the Dauphin might have gone along with them, but because Dauphin didn't really get his comeuppance, if no. so. No, well, I mean, that's I mean not that a... doesn't happen. I don't think that I mean, happened in real life. That doesn't always happen in Shakespeare either. But oh, that's true. That's true. Um, so yeah, so he gets into the fight himself, and he like he fights this guy. One on one from the back of the horse, and he ends up winning with a pimp slap to the face. Like he just full on backhands him with a yep. metal fist. <laughs> yep, because he uh, he he tries to like stab Henry or something, so yeah. Henry just like just bonk knocks him. I don't mean does he fall off the horse? I yeah, can't he does. Yeah, so uh, they win the day. Uh, it's a major victory for the English. Again, they they could have been outnumbered as much as six to one. So this was an impressive victory. Um, they basically they go to the castle Agincourt. King Charles VI is there. He's very feeble and kind of like weak. Henry basically insists on marrying Catherine, the yeah. princess, in a very... Well, of course, Shakespeare doesn't have the same modern drama conventions, but we have a scene at the end where he's basically trying to pressure him into marrying her. Do pressure get... her into marrying him. Can hear a little bit of this? <laughs> Let's hear a little bit of it for the audience. Let them hear it's it. It's a weird scene. <laughs> fair Catherine, and most fair. Will you vouchsafe to teach a soldier terms such as will enter at a lady's ear and plead his love suit to her gentle heart? 
Your Majesty shall mock at me. I cannot speak your England. Oh, fair Catherine, if you will love me soundly with your French heart, I will be glad to hear you confess it brokenly with your English tongue. Do you like me, Kate? Pardonnez-moi. I cannot tell what is like me. <laughs> an angel is like you, Kate. And you are like an angel. Can I just say one thing? Yeah. When he says, do you like me, Kate? <laughs> I lost it because that is the first time in the movie where I was like, that sounds like modern yeah, dialogue. Yeah, because what you mean, do I like like you? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I almost like pictured like Catherine Hepburn on the other side of that. Like oh, Humphrey I, Bogart. No, I like, don't like you. I don't like you. I like water and exercise. That's what I like. <laughs> and a nice whiskey once in a while. <laughs> I like brisk walks and... <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so, but she does marry him because, you know, back in the day, he, she didn't really have a say in the matter. He wears her down. He wears her down. Let's, yeah. let's face it. My, much like my left foot, he wears her he down. He wears her down. And, but the fact is, you know, he's one of the most powerful men in the world. So what are you going to do? Yeah. So, but uh, he didn't have a lot of agency. So he marries her and Charles the sixth, the King of France adopts Henry as his heir. Cause he's a loser. And, uh. <laughs> Catherine or Henry are married, and nothing ever bad, nothing bad ever happens again, and everybody's happily ever after. Um, I feel like you're not telling the truth. Uh, well, I'm just telling you what happens in the play. Okay. All right. Well, we'll get to the history. So, you want to talk about the history of this movie? Uh, yeah. You go ahead, and then I'll and then I'll get into some of the background. All right. I've got a bunch of different. I want to talk a little bit about the history, and I want to talk a little bit about what this movie means as far as like its production time and its difference from the original play. Okay. So the real battle. This was a real battle that happened at Agincourt. The the obviously in a movie it's not exactly what happened, but a lot of the details are real, especially like I said, the cavalry in the mud, the the archers putting up the the sticks in the soil to cause the cavalry to break off because otherwise the horses would just run into these stakes. Um, the ground was an open strip of land near the village of Azincourt that was flanked by trees, so the cavalry could not get through the trees. So, like I said earlier, that gave the English a huge advantage because they could keep the cavalry in front of them, where they could hit them with their long bowmen. Um, and at the end of the battle, based on the estimates that I've read, Wikipedia, uh, no more than 600 Englishmen died, and there were some injured, but they didn't, they didn't have numbers for that. Whereas the French lost between, at minimum, 1,500 people and, at most, 11,000 dead soldiers. Wow. Yeah, it, it was a, it was a and then the rest huge surrendered. victory for the English. What? I said, and then the rest surrendered. Yes, and then the rest surrendered. <laughs> so they, they definitely did get across what happened at Agincourt. Now, what you have to understand, this is an edited version of the play. Most Shakespeare plays you will see in films, with the exception of, like, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, are generally uh, cut for time. Because oh, they're yeah. long plays. Isn't Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, like, four hours it's long? It's four hours long, because it is the entire original text. Yeah. Uh, in most versions of Hamlet, the there, there's a subplot with the King of Norway, Fortinbras, uh, that is cut for time. Because it's not that important to the story, but it right. is part of the original play. And right. no, that, that is fully in that movie. Yeah, That's yeah. a great movie, by the way. That is a star-studded film that I can't believe isn't on this list. May not be British, technically. Uh, well, I mean, Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh is, yes, absolutely. Be. So here's some trivia about this movie. The Mel Gibson Hamlet's not on this list either. Or, uh, thing, so this this movie is... I, I said it was a sequel, and it is because there are a number of returning characters. Henry V, first among them, obviously, from when he was Prince Hal. But you'll notice some of the comedic scenes in this movie involving um, pistol. Uh, ancient, ancient Pistol, as well as uh, uh, Corporal Nim and Miss Quickly. 
Uh, those are all char- and Bardoff. Those are all characters from from Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two, and they are also all in the Merry Wives of Windsor, which is another Shakespeare play. So there's at least four Shakespeare plays with these characters, and plus other plays and books have been written after the fact with those characters. So are you saying that Shakespeare has kind of like a cinematic universe? He does. Surprisingly, he was very ahead of his time. That's crazy. Now, one of those characters that's mentioned, and in the movie we actually get to see him because in the play you don't. He's only mentioned is Falstaff. Oh, you. Uh... You're saying you don't see him in the movie? You see him? No, you do. You do see him in the oh, movie. Okay, I'm saying in, in the original play, he's his death is mentioned. Oh, but you don't actually see him. You don't actually see him. Oh. But in the movie, they do have a shot of him in bed, and, and he doesn't say anything. But yeah, he dies. please explain this because this I had yeah. no idea. What was so going Falstaff on. is like Henry's mentor. Okay, he was he's this big fat dude who's jolly and and is a buddy of uh, when Prince Henry was growing up. Falstaff was kind of the guy that took him under his wing and and kind of taught him about the world and and was a friend of his and and through Falstaff. He also knew Corporal Nim and Bardoff, who was one of um, Henry's closest friends, uh, and he was uh, the Willem, Agent Pistol. He was the Willem Dafoe to his Aquaman. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And, and Miss Quickly, who runs the Boar's Head Inn. The Boar's Head Inn is also in the other play, as well as uh, Merry Wives of Windsor. Okay. Um, so what did Henry do to him? Because there's a big thing about how they keep saying, oh, Henry did... Did something to Falstaff to make him? Like, yeah, I don't know. I didn't read Henry the part Henry the Fourth Part One and Two to weird. figure out why uh, why they had a, an issue. It's weird that they would include that in the movie because they don't really explain that ever. Yeah, I know, and, and I feel like it's there simply because like those characters are important and those characters are uh, like uh, ignited enough imaginations on fire that like there was there's been multiple plays and and books even written about those characters outside mm-hmm. of Shakespeare. So they they clearly caught people's imagination. Um, but it's cool that uh, that they you know are there. Um, this movie you have to understand too. This movie is a work of World War II propaganda, Brendan. Uh, this movie was made by it was partially funded by the British government. It was shot in Winston- 1944, which is right at the height of the war. Winston Churchill uh, basically commissioned him to make the yeah, movie uh, because they wanted something to inspire the English people and and keep their morale up through the end of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you know too that there's an early trailer? Uh, for this movie. I tried to find it, but I yeah. couldn't find it. But there's an early trailer for the movie that actually features... Uh, it shows, like, you know that opening tracking shot of the whole, like, London... Oh, my set. God, that beautiful shot of that <coughs> crazy village, or of London in that time, yeah. So in the trailer, they actually went from that to real footage of mo- modern-day London, and then back to that very oh, much cool. to accentuate the fact that this was, you know, about that. Yeah, obviously in this movie they, they wanted to get people riled up to fight the Nazis and, and having this classic story of this this true and just and, and beloved king was the way to go about it. Now, because this is a work of World War II propaganda, Winston Churchill himself basically told Olivier that, hey, look, this is... We want this for morale. I want you to basically cut out anything that is critical of Henry or anything that makes Henry look bad, I want you to cut. So... A lot of that stuff got cut. So among those things, uh, there was a subplot where three of his lords had been kind of compromised by the French uh, to be spies and then to kill him at a given point. And Henry uh, executes those three men once he finds out about the plot. Uh, the other one that was big was that his friend Bardoff, after the Battle of Harfleur, the Siege of Harfleur rather, Bardoff is caught looting, which is illegal. You're not supposed to do that. And Henry absolutely 100% hangs him. Straight up orders his hanging. Even though this guy's his buddy, he doesn't want to be seen as, you know, lacking justice. And and, and I, he doesn't have any kind of emotional reaction either. No. He just, he just, it's like, well, you committed a crime and now you're done. 
Yeah. There's also at the end of the play, there in in, in the final like kind of chorus thing, Shakespeare made reference to the fact that all the gains made in this movie, all the triumph, all the gains in this movie were then lost under Henry the Sixth, his son. Uh, the uh, he they lost the throne of France or whatever during the rest of the Hundred Years' War, basically. Um, so he made a note to that. I I I have one more thing they they cut. Yeah, I don't know if you have it or not. What's that? Uh, there was another thing they apparently um, when he goes to pillage her floor, uh, basically going there and saying like, if you don't surrender. His, uh, in the play, he says, yeah. if you don't surrender, I'm going to uh, unleash my troops to rape and pillage the city. Yeah, okay, so he, I actually have a little bit of this speech. So okay. he says, um, so he's giving this speech at post floor, and this is one of the dark parts that they cut because they didn't want Henry to look bad. He goes, right. The gates of mercy shall be all shut up, and the fleshed soldier, rough and hard of heart, in liberty of bloody hand, shall range with conscience wide as hell, mowing like grass your fresh fair virgins and your flowering infants. Basically saying that we're going to kill everyone uh, if you don't open these gates right now. We are going to we're going to destroy this town. We are going to, with conscience in liberty of bloody hands, shall range with conscience wide as hell, mowing like grass your fresh fair virgins and your flowering infants. They're willing to kill everybody in the town if they don't just surrender the city. I, I could see why he didn't keep that in if he's trying oh, to be a propaganda. Movie. Wait, no, absolutely, absolutely. No, I, I get it exactly. And yeah. and like this is also they they cut all references to Henry murdering or killing, depending on your view, the French prisoners. Because back then, if you weren't rich enough to be worth a ransom back to the, your origin nation, they just killed you because they didn't want to pay for food or have to deal with you. I mean, unlike now where we have you know international law that says you have to maintain prisoners of war in a given level of standard, I guess a little level, a particular standard of living, feed them, take care of them, give them medical treatment. Unless you didn't have to do that back unless then. Unless you're in Guantanamo Bay. Unless you're in Guantanamo right? Bay, exactly. So, uh, it's pretty cool, this uh, this uh, film. What do you want to say, Brendan? Well, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the background of the movie. Yeah. So, this movie is pretty historic. It's a pretty big deal because this is ultimately known as the first fully successful and critically acclaimed adaptation to film of Shakespeare. Yeah. Because the uh, early attempts included uh, Mary Pickford did a 1929 version of The Taming of the Shrew, Mm -hmm. which was almost all silent film because it's just during the, like, kind of... uh, That was that period. Yeah, there there is some dialogue, but it's during the jump from silent to dialogue, so it's not... It it doesn't retain a lot of it. If I remember correctly, 1929 was the same year The Jazz Singer came out, which is widely regarded as the first talkie. Yes, and also known as the least problematic film ever made. Absolutely. Nothing wrong with that one. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing nothing wrong with a Jewish guy in blackface. No, if I said it once, I said it it a million times. So Max Reinhardt made A Midsummer Night's Dream, 1935, which received, like, some moderate acclaim, Mm -hmm. but nothing nothing crazy. Crazy. As You Like It in 1936, which actually starred Laurence Olivier, but again, didn't receive great reviews. And then The Nail in the Coffin was Romeo and Juliet. There was a version of that in 1936, that same year. Lost something close to a million dollars at the box office. In ni- now, that's 1936 money. Yeah. That's insane. I mean, hey, maybe they just realized that that may be the most famous of Shakespeare plays, but it's not that great. <laughs> oh, hot take. Yeah, I'm going to uh, say it. Romeo and Juliet. Not the best Shakespeare play. But is it the best Baz Luhrmann film? Mm, No. That would be Moulin Rouge, absolutely. Okay. Maybe it's Australia. I haven't seen it. Me neither. But the thing is about Henry V is, yes, it was successful, and yes, it was uh, critically and financially, but it did take until 1949 
for United Artists, who made the movie, to see profit for mm-hmm. it, but it amounted to a profit of $1.6 million. That's pretty so, good for 19 from 1940s. Uh, some it's just some things here about the kind of the movie a little bit. Uh, the gentleman who plays Flew Ellen, mm-hmm. I did make that up. See, okay, his name is Esmond Knight. He was actually a wounded veteran oh. it, from 1941. So oh he right, yes, he had been in fighting in the war, yeah, three years. Yeah. Um, and he had gone actually completely blind for two years after that. And when the movie was made, he had only just begun to regain eyesight in his right eye. Wow. So that's just that gives you an idea. Uh, if you watch him, you can kind of see that a little bit because mm-hmm. he kind of like. There's a few times I notice he doesn't quite look where the person is standing, or he looks off a little bit. Mm. Well, I guess I did a little bit about Lawrence Olivier himself. Mm. So contrary to a lot, what a lot of people believe, including myself, he actually didn't grow up in theater at all. Yeah, no, he was encouraged by his parents, wasn't he? Yeah, his family was were not actors. Yeah. Uh, his dad was a clergyman. And he basically, yeah, encouraged him to pursue an acting career because he thought, hey, you're good at it. Like, go for it. Do you know that Lawrence Olivier had, like, kind of the Hollywood reputation? I mean, I'm trying to think of a modern day, maybe like a Keanu Reeves or like an Emma Stone of being, like, a super nice person. I would not have expected that. I would have assumed him being, like, a famous Shakespearean actor that he would have been a total dick. Well, I mean, this is is what I read. Uh, Apparently... His nice guy, re- nice guy reputation was so good that Marilyn Brando, who was known as kind of a prominent playboy, mm-hmm. was talking to like his wife at one point, and he said, "You know, I was going to seduce his wife, but then I said I can't do that to poor Larry." <laughs> poor Larry. <laughs> just I love the idea of Larry Olivier. <laughs> just couldn't bring it to himself. Bring himself to fuck his friend's I wife. I can't fuck that guy. I can't fuck his wife. I love her. Yeah. I love him. So that's that's what I have for that. I mean, are you ready to uh, deep dive into Henry V? Well, you want to talk a little bit about just what we think of the movie? Do, do we do that now? I don't know. I, I mean, we wait till later. later. Okay, well, whatever. <laughs> I don't know the format of my own podcast. <laughs> so we've only done 12 episodes. Yeah. Dive in, Brendan. <laughs> Despite the large set at the beginning being basically a, a miniature. And it's so fucking cool. It's so amazing. It took him four months to build that, didn't it? I, I did not know that. Yeah, I think it was four months it took him to build that. And I wonder if it is still somewhere. I wonder if they ever, if anybody ever kept it because it's beautiful. Well, and I want to talk about just the overall way this movie is set up. Mm. We talked about it a little bit, but it is set up at the beginning as you're at the Globe Theater in the Mm -hmm. 1500s watching them put on this play of Henry V. And for a second, when I first started watching this, I was like, is this going to be the whole movie? Yeah, I would have been fine with that. I thought it was really cool to set up. I don't know if I would have been fine with Mm. the whole movie like that, though. I think it would have got tiresome after a while. It would have been interesting because... when this play is performed on stage, the Battle of Agincourt is not shown because well, how yeah. the hell are you going to show a battle on stage? Well, I noticed that when we do see the battle in the movie, there's almost no dialogue. Yeah, exactly. We're just seeing what's happening. Uh, so what I wanted to say here is, so it's interesting because the movie, like at the beginning, it's very much a, a play. Yeah. And by the end of the movie, of course, it becomes a play again. But throughout the course of the movie, it slowly becomes more cinematic. That's actually a very um, underrated thing the actors have mm. to do in this movie because I don't know if... If this was, if you notice this too, but at the beginning of the movie, everyone is very theatrical. They're playing to the back. Lawrence Olivier is basically like, "I'm Henry V. It's like the stereotypical Shakespeare that you expect because yeah. they are on stage. They are playing to. They don't have amplification, so they're playing yep. to people that are. That globe was a pretty tall theater with lots of balconies, so you had to play to the people at the top if you wanted to be heard. So as the movie progresses, their acting changes too. Yeah. It gets more like realistic, more more, more film. 
less stagey. And I think it's really interesting because you have someone like Laurence Olivier who did theater obviously before this. Mm. He didn't grow up in the world of theater, but he definitely did theater before he made yeah. this movie. And for him to, I'm assuming, recruit a, mostly stage actors in this movie, for them to all start out as a play, I wonder if that's his way on top of the way, on top of the fact that he probably wanted to film it like that anyway, but I wonder if that's also his way of kind of shaping the actors' performances because you have a lot of stage actors and you're slowly trying to move them into a like a film performance, mm-hmm. which is so different. Yeah, oh, you got to be like a, a totally different kind of actor, and I wonder if that's how he got these great performances out of these stage actors. I'm trying to remember who it was, but I read something about that there was a particular director that he really respected because this director had taught him about the difference between performing on stage and performing for screen and really helped his on-screen performances, like making them more subtle, dealing with close-ups and not having to like go so all out because it's sh- because you're on stage and having to be big. Uva Bowl. Yeah, it was definitely him, yes. <laughs> he's he's a he, he's an immortal. I have a question for you. So right off the bat, when they're doing the when, they, when we're in the play, when we're in the Globe Theater yeah. section of the movie is that supposed to be Shakespeare? That's the thing. Okay, so a guy walks through, and he's got a hat on, a black hat, and he gives his look back, and I'm thinking, is that Shakespeare? And then I look a little closer, I'm like, is that fucking Peter O'Toole? I don't know. It sure looks like Peter O'Toole. Well, I don't know if it's Peter O'Toole, but there's totally a dude on on the side of the stage yeah. with the script. Yeah. Reading it as they're going. Oh, that I, I mean, thought that was Shakespeare. Maybe, but that that would at least be the person that was feeding lines if they needed it. Because if you've ever done a stage production, Brendan, have you done a stage production, Brendan? No. No. Okay. So if you've ever done a stage production, which I have, Brendan, I played Colonel Pickering in a production of. Uh, I was going to say there's something about Mary. Okay. <laughs> I played Colonel Pickering in a production of um, My Fair Lady. May we speak to Colonel Pickering? Oh yes, hello. Yes, it's absolutely good to be here. I was outside with Boozy. You see, my old friend Boozy. We had just a fantastic time drinking and commiserating and talking about Eliza Doolittle and how she hooked up with that... uh, He's stuck in the role. Sure, hooked up with that Henry Higgins. (laughs) Shit, what happened? Jason, you you back? Sorry, I fell into high school. What happened? Uh, Colonel Pickering gave us a bit. Made a oh, he's a good fella. He's a good fella. You're Jason, right? Yes, you're I, not, you're not I am Jason. That is my identity. You're not Daniel. I'm not Daniel. Who's okay. that? Daniel Day Lewis. I don't know that guy. Monster. Never heard of him. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh no. Okay. So yeah, when when you're doing a play, there's usually a person if they're not sitting in the front row as they did at our show, uh, they're usually in the wing, and they're there to feed lines. If you have an issue with a line, if you take up an extra pause because you don't know what the line is, chances are they will say it. Uh, so it may not have been Shakespeare. I really think Shakespeare was the guy in the black hat that walks in and kind of looks around and then looks like Peter O'Toole. Okay. And uh, I noticed that they're uh, they're passing out, like, I guess, concession items in mm-hmm. that day, which is, like, oranges and stuff. And I really wanted someone to look at one of the oranges and be like, and you call this a small... <laughs> I, I actually, honestly, I think part of that was we always see the the meme, I guess, the historical meme of like throwing tomatoes at people. But that literally would happen if they didn't like what they were seeing. They would throw fruit at the stage. Well, so. and this is the Shakespeare thing. I think this is the the way to. This is part of the reason why he opens the movie like this, is because you notice that at, when Shakespeare's plays start, I do know this is that there's a lot of comedy at the top. Yeah. Because they have these people in the front. They're known as the Groundlings, mm-hmm. which, of course, is now a comedy no, troupe. sketch group, yeah. Yeah. But the Groundlings basically paid next to nothing for their tickets. Mm-hmm. They're like lower middle class, poor people, and they want, you know, they just want to laugh. They just yeah. want dirty, like, 
comedy and dirty jokes. If you read Shakespeare, there's a lot yeah. of dirty jokes. I mean, Shakespeare was the, like we, we were talking earlier off mic about four quadrant movies. Uh, Shakespeare was the blockbuster writer of his time. Like his plays appealed to everybody from the lowest commoner to the highest aristocrat. Like he was very much a person. And, and you could have that. You could either be on the floor with the groundlings or you could be up in a fucking fancy uh, uh, balcony. Well, yeah. And the thing about the groundlings is they're not understanding a lot of the stuff that the upper class folk mm -hmm. may be getting on another level. Yeah. But that stuff right off the top is to reel them in. Because yeah. if you don't reel them in, you don't have them on board with your play. They're the ones that are going to throw the tomatoes. Yeah, and they're going to cause shit. And, and you know, Because in those days, like they're, they're like hecklers. Like You just you have to deal with them. You have to kind of keep get them on your side first before you... Uh get going i gotta say it's it's a weird motivation that drives this whole movie mm. because or the player or whatever because henry v is obviously going after france because he wants he wants to seek his throne he believes he has a legitimate claim to that throne but that's i have a hard time getting behind that mm. as a, as oh, a no, main you character should. and i think the, the having the two uh, church or the the archbishop or whatever at the beginning kind of like let everyone know their plan to distract mm. them with this and the fact that they're so dopey and mm. like comedic is supposed to kind of distract you from the yes. fact that the premise of this movie yeah. is that Henry is like I'm going to sacrifice my men because I want more power yeah yeah I, it's kind of hard to get behind that character and I think the play kind of is more subtle about that idea. Like we see much more, as we said, we see much more of the darkness in Henry in the play, but this movie is not about the darkness. It's not about presenting this three dimensional character. It's about presenting this rousing film to get people, you know, uh, happy and, and behind the war effort to fight the, to fight the Germans. Do you notice whenever they're showing backstage, no one's ever actually talking? <laughs> Obviously because there's no dialogue uh, for that. But oh, I just think it's interesting that there was no dialogue in the movie. Like yeah. that you don't, you never see them perform as actors no it's it, everything is in the play everything outside the play is just shown it's not ever heard but i want to say like i love the details i love the way the theater looks i love the costumes i love the fact that they have uh boys dressed up as women because Do that's exactly yep uh, now obviously miss quickly was not was clearly not a boy okay. but but in the backstage scene you see boys in makeup and putting on wigs and stuff as they're getting ready to go on stage. Are they trying... Now, there is a scene where there is someone someone helping someone trying a wig. Yeah. Now, I th I'm pretty sure that's an actress, but yeah. is she supposed to be a boy playing a girl? Yeah, I think so. I, well, it may, may be a boy. Maybe some you, girly looking boys. You, you notice that... <laughs> Okay. You notice <laughs> that you notice that once the movie we only really get female characters yeah. in the play once the movie has shifted to a more realistic yeah. style. And that's when it's like, oh okay, these are actresses because now we're watching a movie. Yeah. Now I don't know if we actually see any boys uh, as women in the course of the play, but we see them backstage and like I say, that was a thing that happened back Oh yeah, then. no, I know, hundred percent. That's why I was wondering if uh if that actually was supposed to be a boy playing yeah. a girl because I thought, Oh, it's a girl and I thought that was just like a historical yeah. thing that he just wanted to change yeah. or whatever. I don't know, Brendan. Uh, but we also have to point out the audience is very helpful for knowing where the comedy is. Yeah. And I was surprised when when Nim and uh, Nim and Pistol come out for the first time and everybody applauds and and then I was like, why why are they why are they so excited to see these guys? And then of course as I dug in and realized they were from other Shakespeare plays that these guys were like returning characters for these people watching the movie. They're like, oh, these guys, they're back, yeah. What do you think of uh, the character of the chorus? Because I read a lot. So played by Leslie Banks, mm -hmm. and I read a lot of stuff about how he's pretty much like next to Olivier. Everyone kind of praises Leslie Banks as like the second best performer, I guess. Yeah. And I, I don't, 
I mean, he's fine, I guess. He's fine. The, the The chorus is a tradition in Shakespeare. A lot of plays of his plays have that, where they have this kind of disembodied role of a person that's kind of explaining what's going on. In, uh, I believe in Romeo and Juliet, the monk kind of fills that role, because he gives that famous speech at the end of it, where, you know, the star-crossed lovers and... Is he a bulletproof monk? Uh, well, he's no chow yun fat, I'll tell you that. Hey! Hey, check Brendan's other podcast out, and you might see that movie that's someday. That's going to happen. <laughs> so... Uh, what about the, when it starts to rain? That was so awesome. I thought that was such a wonderful touch to really drive home the fact that it's a play, that it's a real thing. Um, yeah, it was really cool. But then also the bowing after a scene, like after the scene with Nim and Pistol and all them, they have their comedic scene and then everybody applauds and they take their bows after the fucking scene. Like, it's like, usually you wait to the end of the play, but maybe in those days you take your, you take your bow now. Those actors are really proud of that scene. Yeah. Uh, I love some other details, like the one dude comes out with the sign holding up, saying like where they are or what they're, you know, like walk, like, like like he's like a boxing girl. Well, and that's and that's what it was when the when the rain hits. Yeah, we're in the seedy part of town. Yeah, but it also rains in the theater. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and, and and there's one guy clapping. One one guy claps for the dude holding the sign, which I thought was wonderful. Uh, one of the guys comes, or the the priest, the either the priest or deacon or whoever is with the archbishop at some point. He's getting ready to go on stage, and his hat falls off. Yes. And he just goes in, and then there's another scene, I think, where it's, I think it might be Pistol or Nim, where their hat falls off during the scene, but they just keep going. Like, that was a very nice little theater touch. Yeah, and, really and, and they have that. other little things. Like, you notice uh, when Laurence Olivier is going out as Henry V, and you see him backstage just before, he mm. kind of has this little thing where he kind of looks nervous for a little bit, mm -hmm. just has a brief, like, little nervous cough, yeah. and then goes out, and it's like, that's, that's another nice touch. You'll notice, too, the... As, as we move from the play to the, the kind of illuminated manuscript style, uh, um, the costuming changes Yeah, where it's much more like more of that, of those types of drawings, much more colorful. Whereas in when it's in the theater, it's clear they're wearing theater clothes. They're wearing costumes. Yeah. And and like they like even Henry's hair is different. On stage, he's just a guy, Olivier just has like kind of a regular haircut that's kind of combed in a certain way. But when you get out to like the quote unquote real world, He's got the full, like, monk-style, like, just helmet of hair that is, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of shaved along the bottom, and it's like a bowl cut. Uh, and I mean, if you, and if you, like, if you want, if you look at the movie, as it becomes more like a movie, it still feels like, it still feels like a distinct play with acts and scenes. Yeah. It's almost like with the chorus, it's also like constantly reminding us that this is a play. Mm -hmm. There's even see, there's even bits where you know just before the battle, the chorus is like, "Imagine this is happening," and imagine this yep. is happening, and then we see it, and we see it. Yeah, yeah. I do want to play one, uh, another clip here. Sure. So this is a scene. I think it's pretty daring that Olivier kept this scene in without subtitles. Yeah. Because this is a scene of Princess Catherine. So she's with her maid, and she's kind of realizing, like, there's a very likely possibility that English are going to take over. I'm going to have to learn English. Mm -hmm. So she's kind of talking with her maid, who does know a little bit of English, uh, teaching her, like, various words in English. So let's, uh, let's hear listen. a little bit. Alice, tu as été en Angleterre, et tu parles bien le langage. Un peu, madame. Je te prie, m'enseigner. Il faut que j'apprenne à parler. Comment appelez-vous l'âne en anglais La main, elle est appelée the hand. The hand. Et les doigts Les doigts Oh, ma foi, j'oublie les doigts. Mais je me souviendrai, les doigts. Ah, je pense qu'ils sont appelés the fingers. Oui, the fingers. La main de hand, les doigts de fingers. Je pense que je suis le bon écolier. J'ai gagné deux mots d'anglais, vitement. Comment 
appelez-vous les ongles Les ongles. Nous les appelons denials. Denials. Écoutez, dites-moi si je parle bien. The hand, the fingers, the knives. Oh, C'est bien dit, madame. Il est fort bon anglais. Dites-moi l'anglais pour le bras. The arm, madame. Et le coude The elbow. The elbow. Je m'en fais la répétition de tous les mots que vous m'avez appris dès à présent. Oh, ça, c'est trop difficile, madame, comme je pense. Excusez-moi, Alice. Écoutez. The hand, the fingers, the nails, the arm, the elbow. Sauf pour son heure, the elbow. Oh, Seigneur Dieu, je m'en oublie. The elbow. Here's the thing. I don't understand a lot of French, but I can tell you, based on listening to that scene and knowing that that scene is written, that that is written in Shakespeare's play in French, that French has clearly not changed as much in the last like 600 years as English has. I'm because jealous. I picked up I picked up almost more of the French than I did of the English. Well, and that's <laughs> the thing I was going to say. So with that scene, yeah, he doesn't put subtitles. No. It's all in French. Yeah. Um, but just the I think the acting and like their their physical acting. She's actually pointing to her like the body parts and stuff. It, it works somehow. Yeah. And it's not crazy to me that some British people might have picked up a little bit of French in their lives because French is fr well, she, French. France is right there across the channel. Well, she's supposed I mean, to be French. I mean, she's. I'm saying. Oh, I'm oh, saying. The I'm saying for the viewers, the yeah. '40s viewers, perhaps. You know, they're all dead now, so it's okay. Yeah, it's all right. No cares. There's an interesting conversation at the camp. So when Henry is in his cloak, uh, hiding somehow. Although Just, I feel like some of these people have seen him before, so it's kind of weird. Yeah, but I mean, how often would you get a chance to see the the king? Even though you're serving the king, how often would you get a chance to see the king up close? Like, like to look him straight in the face and know what he looks they like. Didn't have Facebook? Would, maybe. Like, come on. I mean, it would, they would have been in a, a literal book of an illuminated manuscript <laughs> with a with a, an etching of Henry. But yeah, that's what I mean. Like my like my new photo. <laughs> Poke me. But the but there's a conversation between Henry and some of the guys, and they keep, they seem to push forward this theme that like a soldier's life, uh, being lost mm. is solely on that soldier and not necessarily on the the, the king that yeah. leads them. And there's this idea that Henry will also never never surrender, and that kind of motivates the troops. But then one of the soldiers is like, "Well, yeah, but what if I die and you surrender after? I would never know. So yeah. what am I? Am I actually fighting for the fact that you will never give up, or maybe you'll just give up after I'm gone? Like yeah. it's this kind of interesting idea that is uh, unfortunately just kind of dropped. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like that's just that's a Shakespeare thing more than it is a uh, Lawrence Olivier thing. Yeah. Should we mention too that um, this is not the only version of Henry V that's ever been made? Uh, a more fit, well, more famous, I guess, more well known, even more well known, yeah, probably, probably was uh, more readily available, more readily available, certainly. Jesus. In 1989, Kenneth Branagh, whom I mentioned earlier uh, as doing Hamlet, did his own version of Henry V. Now, this movie, I've not seen it, but I'm kind of interested to see it now because I want to see his take on it. But from what I understand, this movie is much closer to the original text. It features the speech, that, uh, or most of the speech that I quoted earlier from. After Harfleur, he doesn't shy away from the darkness of Henry. Although it's not, it's basically the same length, though. Yeah, it's it's a yeah, it's just weird. Yeah. So obviously, he cut some stuff out. Yeah. Uh, for time, but like this movie is a much darker, much grittier. There, it's more realistic. There, there, you know, it is a movie that is. It's actually more anti-war than anything. It's it's a movie clearly inspired, as I understand, by like Vietnam War movies, mm -hmm. and it's very much more anti-war. And I'm honestly like surprised. Like, uh, uh, granted, like yes, you put one Olivier Shakespeare on this list. I'm actually surprised that there's two. Yeah. To be honest, but I'm surprised like you wouldn't put Kenneth Branagh's Henry yeah. V and maybe like 
Olivier's Henry the... Uh, but then you got like two Henry the Fifth. But there's two Oliver Twists on this well, I, damn I, list. I don't... I mean, I've seen a few clips of of the 89 Henry V. And, and while... Like, it's one of those things, like, looking at that movie, like, it's a well-shot movie and I like the way it looks, but, like, it doesn't have an aesthetic that sticks out like 1944's Henry V. Like True. insane three-strip Technicolor, beautiful costumes and just just flags in the distance and blue sky and green grass. It's so goddamn beautiful and it just, it makes me so happy to see something that beautiful. That's true. And that's why I wouldn't take this Henry V off the list. No. But if... But, I mean... They could put, like, maybe Branagh's Hamlet yeah. instead of Olivier's Hamlet. I mean, we haven't watched Olivier's Hamlet yet, but... I mean, I'm sure it's great, but... I don't know. We don't need... I, I don't feel like you need both Shakespeare works on this list to be both from Olivier. What but, about Mel Gibson's Hamlet? They should have put that on there. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I've heard it's not bad. No, Glenn Close, I think, is in it? I'm sure Mel Gibson was fine in well, it. Well, what's interesting he's a, is... He's the, an upstanding young gentleman. Like, I, I love the fact that, like, like Mel Gibson's Hamlet is, like, straight medieval, dark, gritty, straight medieval setting, whereas whereas Branagh's Hamlet is, like, clearly, like, pre-World War One. It's, like, kind of early 1900s kind of setting. Wait, Mel Gibson's Hamlet was Braveheart, right? Yes, absolutely. Do you want to hear, um... Kenneth Branagh's version? Yeah, I do. I want to. So you folks heard uh, Olivier's version earlier, which is a very theatrical and it's rousing, but it's like it's a very kind of we band of brothers, we band of brothers, we happy few. Like it's very, it's very, it's very Olivier. It's very Shakespeare. It's very stagey. Um, Branagh's version, though, he is he is in the. I mean, he's like in a forest like they're in the trees with his men and they're all kind of a little closer to him it's a little more intimate yep so let's hear a little bit of Brown's version just for comparison's sake this is, for this is the, by the way this is the exact same poll exact same dialogue uh that you heard on the other earlier clip so decide what you like best he that shall see this day and live old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say tomorrow is saint crispin's then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in their mouths as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son. And Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world. But we in it shall be remembered. We few. We happy few. We band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks that thought with us upon St. Crispin's Day! God damn, that's good. I mean, both of them are good, but that one just there's something extra about that. Like there's something about Brana's performance that just feels less theatrical and more real. Yes and no. Yeah, I'm gonna slightly disagree with you. I you think can disagree with me anytime, Brendan. That's fine. It it's still kind of sounds theatrical. To well, me. I mean, it, it's Shakespeare. Yeah, I mean, I I, kinda, I think it's hard to not make that the yeah. Shakespeare theatrical unless you 
do a complete modern update. Mm. Which yeah, which in, we've in, seen in, done with like uh, no, actually, you know what? Even Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, he the kept all text, the same yeah. dialogue. Yeah, yeah. I, I was telling Brendan like, and then this may sound like blasphemy. I, I don't want a direct translation of, of Shakespeare's Henry the Fifth, but I would love to see that Henry the Fifth story told in a modern way, maybe with Ridley Scott at the helm. Come on, Ridley, you're in your eighties. Let's get this done before you die. And but, you know you'll shoot it in twenty six days. Absolutely, you'll just get her knocked out. I mean, and if you've ever seen Kingdom of Heaven, you know Ridley's good at doing like siege siege warfare and and putting that on screen for a second i thought you were using siege as like a shorthand for cgi yeah <laughs> siege you know he doing siege he doing if like effects but yeah i, I yeah. all props to kenneth brana i love him i've loved him ever since i saw that cnn documentary on the cold war and he narrated it so i just thumbs up to kenneth brana and please be my friend oh, there you go get at us on twitter Kenneth Branagh, because he definitely has Twitter. Absolutely. Can you explain to me, because this scene, I had, had no idea what mm -hmm. was going on. I'll try. <laughs> After the battle is uh -huh. over, yeah. and this is before Henry starts wooing Catherine, yeah. there's a whole thing with Pistol being bullied into eating like a leek. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that has to do with... Because the leek, I think, is this... Because you've noticed everybody's wearing different symbols on them, and I think it's the symbol of their families. Like, one guy's wearing a red rose, which I think... Is the is that the it's either the Lancasters or the um, of Game of Thrones? No, those are the Lannisters. Oh, the, so no, well, and that's the thing. Game of Thrones is based on the War of the Roses, which comes later. But it's a I've war never between seen a single episode. The House of Lancaster and the House of York. I think the York is the White Rose and Lancaster is the Red Rose. Okay, but yeah, he's wearing a red rose, so that clearly means he's like a he's a Lancaster um, or a York. I don't remember, but uh, he. But yeah, the other guy has a leak on his head, and I think that's the symbol of his kind of family house that he comes from is the leak, and that's why it's like a symbolic thing that he wants to make him eat the leak so to be like dominated by his family. But <laughs> it's a weird. There's got to be some Shakespeare folks out there that could tell me for sure. See, uh, for me, Shakespeare. Okay, this might be a hot take. I'm not gonna say that it's bad, no, because like, who am I to fucking criticize? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's managed to stick around for like 500 years and be in the people's consciousness, but, conscious even to this day. So there's something to it. But I, one thing I've always not really liked about Shakespeare is the side plots, mm -hmm. and especially when they have almost nothing to do mm -hmm. with the main story. And that, that is like that happens a lot of Shakespeare plays. Yeah, there's these weird little subplots. Like it, it's it almost feels like padding. I like to think that he was future proofing it so that he knew that you could cut that shit and still make a movie out of it like he could see he knew that cinema was coming that's how oh, okay. forward thinking William Shakespeare was he knew Thomas Edison's great 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 grandfather absolutely <laughs> uh, the bishop the archbishop Edison I, I wrote down I don't know why I wrote this down I yeah. think because I started to give up on trying to figure out what yeah. was happening but I wrote listen bitch we don't have to worry about not kissing before marriage we gonna make the rules now we decide what we do up in this bitch pretty much and that's pretty much what he told her He's, she's it's like Henry, oh it's not in Henry it, and Catherine Henry and Catherine yeah Henry tells her he wants to kiss her, and she's like, oh, no, it's not in fashion for French ladies to kiss before they are married. And he's like, hey, bitch, we make the rules now. Let's do this. I mean, that's not what he says, but that's what I got from it. I wish that's what he said. Yeah. Uh, Could you say that in iambic pentameter? <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't even remember what that is. The movie comes to an end. There's a unity between England and France. Like you said, nothing absolute, nothing bad happens nothing at all Nothing bad ever happens that. again. We had that lovely shot where the chorus draws the curtain across them where it is straight out of uh, an illuminated text. Like, it's just yep. with the, everybody looking head on and wearing he does crowns apply and everything. Dire apply directly to the forehead. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he, he does his final speech. Mm -hmm. Chorus does... If anybody gets that, by the way... I hope so. Bonus points. 
I don't know what those would be. Uh, more underwear from Jason. We'll we'll watch more Shakespeare movies. There, Jason, don't don't do that. <laughs> uh, but the chorus does a final speech, wraps it up, and then we kind of I think I think the tracking shot is the same one from the beginning, but in reverse. You think so? I think so. Because <laughs> like. It, but it's only on the Globe Theater, so yeah. it might have been a different shot. It might have just been like they shot a bunch of stuff and then just used part of it. Oh, I'm sure they did four or five different passes of it just to have them. Yeah, but I, I mean, it's a miniature set, yeah. so it wouldn't and have been that. It is, and again, folks, like if you watch nothing else in this movie, check out that miniature shot. It's just so cool. It's just such a well-made miniature. It looks so nice. Uh, I love it. Well, is there anything else you want to say about Henry V, kind of the aesthetic or anything like that, before we kind of get into the next uh, I am. I can say that this movie has really sold me on Laurence Olivier now. And first of all... I, <laughs> you sound like, I thought he was a hack. I thought he was a hack. Uh, I mean, the only movie I... The only movies I'd really seen Laurence Olivier in where I saw... Sky the, Captain in the World of Tomorrow. Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, absolutely. That's great. Best performance. The, the best performance by somebody who'd been dead for 15 years at the time. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> The Boys from Brazil, where he played uh, uh, Nazi Hunter. Wait, wait, hold on, because Marlon Brando was in Superman Returns. He was yeah. pretty good at that, too. Yeah, he will. Uh, yeah, tough competition. But he'd only been dead for, like, four years at that point. If the, he didn't, Was he even dead at that point? Oh, yeah, 100%. That was 2006. Well, well, no, because he was in the score. Do you remember the score? That was 2006. He was dead. Hold on a second. Score was 2001. Was it that early? Yeah. And you remember at the end of that where he smiles and they had to CG it because he wouldn't do it? No. Oh, go back and watch that movie. Because at the end of the movie, it's like it's like you see a shot of Marlon Brando's face, and he has this really like smile he makes, and that is not his smile. They had to do that with computers because he refused to do the smile. Does it look awful? Oh, real bad. Oh, I'm so excited to watch that. <laughs> uh, so, what was I talking about? Uh, Marlon Brando. Uh, I I was saying I was sold on Lawrence Olivier. Yes, sorry. I did it. I was going to say that I went the whole podcast without saying Lawrence of Olivier, and I just did it. It sounds like he's doing like a shampoo commercial. But he was so fucking good in this movie. And I mean, that's not surprising. I mean, he's one of the most well-regarded, you know, actors of, of, of Britain of all time. Have and you ever so, seen the 1980 jazz singer? Was he in that? Never watched that. I thought that, that was Neil Diamond. If you, he's also in it. Oh, no. You know how someone, uh, well, actually, Neil Diamond does wear blackface in one scene. I mean, yeah, because that's that's a scene in the original. No, at yeah. the beginning of the movie, he wears blackface so that he can perform with uh, the all-black band in, yeah. a, in a club that only allows black people. Mammy! But here's the thing. Lawrence Olivier plays his father, and you know how like people get mad, like, oh, somebody's wearing blackface, it's offensive, right? Mm -hmm. He's basically wearing Jewface. <laughs> <laughs> Did they give him like a big schnoz? And, like, oh, no, his performance is like, is insane. Oh, is he like Woody Allen? He's just he like, salad? oh my god, you're good for no reason, Like, oh, it's god. just so like, oh. Well, you know, it was a different time. Anyway, Lawrence Olivier is a great actor. Go on. Wonderful actor, uh, anti-Semite. No, I won't say that. He wasn't an anti-Semite. <laughs> I, I, I can't make that claim. I don't want to get sued by the Olivier family. Marlon Brando didn't sleep with his wife. That's right. He was such a nice guy. <laughs> uh, okay. So I'm glad you like Lawrence Olivier. Uh, so, I mean, this went to the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Not the BAFTAs, because the BAFTAs were actually not around till 1947. And also, there was a war on, Brendan, so get the fuck over yourself. They were too busy fighting Hitler. I'm just saying, they didn't start till Brendan, 1947. Brendan, they didn't have time to award movie awards. They didn't have time to do something so frivolous. Oh, oh, speaking of that, I just want to mention Did quickly. Did you hear me criticize them? 
Well, we'll get there. I wanted to mention, too, this is a bit of trivia that you didn't mention that I had okay. to say. So when they were filming the Agincourt scene, there was a time, because this was during World War II, they were, they were starting to film the scene, and they had to stop filming because they saw a wing of German bombers coming overhead, and then a bunch of English fighters start to engage them. And so they got to basically watch an air battle take place in the air as they shot down these German bombers, and once that was over, they went back to filming the movie. I mean, you know... It's That's just pretty like, cool. It's just like a jet stream, right? Yeah. You just gotta wait till it passes. Just gotta wait till it passes. That's insane. Uh, okay, so, yeah, this goes to the Oscars. Weirdly enough, okay, the Oscars, during the Second World War, the Oscars are not, are not canceled. Like, the Oscars run every year. I think they might have been canceled one year. But here's the thing, okay? Mm-hmm. This movie came out in 1944. Yeah. And what I thought was weird is they were nominated at the 1946 Oscars. So, I don't know if it came out, like, later in the States. Maybe. But it still seems weird to me, because normally, even if it didn't come out till later, it would still go back to the actual year it was released. But either way, uh, it wins an honorary Oscar. Yeah, for, weirdly. And, and the honorary Oscar is, and this is the, this is the full title of it, yeah. for his outstanding achievement as actor, producer, and director. So, I guess not writer, didn't do anything with the script. I no, that was Shakespeare that wrote that. I mean, William Shakespeare. You know what I fucking mean. <laughs> For his outstanding achievement as actor, producer, and director in bringing Henry V to the screen... Uh, Lawrence Olivier. Now, I think the reason for that is, like I said, this was the first successful Shakespeare film. I think that mm-hmm. was a big deal. And I think the Oscars were like, hey, here's an Oscar because you somehow managed to translate... Like, I, I don't know if there's a modern example of, like, an author now who people are saying, like, you literally can't translate into a movie. Like, mm. some people... I mean, this is a weird comparison to make, but a lot of people said that about Watchmen for the yeah. longest time. Yeah. Like, you cannot make that into a movie. And I think that's what was being said about Shakespeare around and the time. And then Zack Snyder did, and it's mostly pretty good. I like it. Yeah, yeah. I like it. And I, I love that book, too, so... Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, that's I think that's kind of interesting. Like, I, th- I feel like Shakespeare was the watchman of its day. Like, people were just like... <laughs> Henry V was the watchman of the 40s. <laughs> <laughs> if you could take anything away from this podcast, that and Jackie Robinson breaking the sound barrier. And, and uh, yeah, well... Don't absolutely. forget we got to remember that. Jackie Robinson broke the sound barrier in 1860. Uh, <laughs> Something like that. I think it was 1776. 1776, right. Yeah. Um, uh, the other thing I had to mention, too, and I, I forgot this until now, uh, Lawrence Olivier agreed... Not to appear in any other films or, or a TV, maybe, at the yep, time, but anything. no films for 18 months. So he could focus solely on promoting this movie. Exactly, and, yeah. and to not distract from it. So that is a that is a huge thing, and they paid him very well. I, was I think he, he made like 400,000 pounds or something at the time. Like It was a ridiculous amount of in money. In 1944 money. Yeah, it was huge money in 1944. So aside from this honorary Oscar, it actually doesn't win anything. Yeah. So it's nominated for Best Art Direction, which really, it should have probably on. won that. What did it win? Or Wait, hold on a second. Uh, I'll, no, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. Okay. The, the winner of that was uh, for a movie a movie called The Yearling. So I've never so heard of that. It must be about a horse. So it's also nominated for Best Original Score. Uh, the, the winner for that one was uh, The Best Years of Our Lives. It's a war film starring a an actual amputee who won Best, best Actor and was Ooh. not an actor. That's cool. It wasn't Lawrence, a... Lawrence Olivier was nominated for uh, Best Actor, Best Lead Actor. And the winner was Frederick March for The Best Years of Our Lives. Hmm. Best Picture. It so, is nominated. But what were the other nominees? Let's list all the nominees before we announce what won Best Picture this year. We're gonna be we're gonna we're gonna open the goddamn envelope just like just like we're live at the Oscars, Jason. Alright, so the nominees for Best Picture nineteen forty six. I'm always so nervous at these things. Oh obviously. Um, so we've got uh, uh, Frank Capra 
Wait, is that the best motion picture? Yeah, we got Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, that's lovely, lovely. Weird, I didn't realize that got nominated for a best picture. Crazy. Uh, Daryl F. Zanuck's The Razor's Edge. Oh, yes. yes. Which is my favorite ACDC album. Uh, <laughs> Sidney Franklin for Metro-Goldwyn-Myers' The Yearling, which, again, I assume is about a horse. Um, Lawrence Olivier for Henry V. And Samuel Goldwyn for RKO Radio's The Best Years of Our Lives. And the Oscar goes to... The best years of our lives. Don't know anything about it? It's on the AFI, actually. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh. So, yeah, so it doesn't, it, it didn't really win anything except for its honorary Oscar. I think art direction and costumes it should have taken at home, but. Oh, man, absolutely. Unfortunately, it uh, did not. Mm. So I'm going to wrap it up here. All right. Talk, I'm going to talk about, I'm just going to give some closing thoughts on this, and then I'll get, some, I'll get your closing thoughts following suit. Absolutely. Uh, so it's our first Shakespeare movie we've mm-hmm. talked about, and hopefully, hopefully on one of two, ne- uh, leading into next week. Hopefully, we don't get the second one. That'd be hilarious if we got Hamlet. <laughs> oh. I'll 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 just I'll be done. Uh, but yeah, it's our first Shakespeare flick. It's number eighteen on the BFI. I just like I was gonna say Shakespeare is a really difficult thing for me to get through. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna lie. Reminds I, me of school. Yeah, it does remind me of school. As much as the English patient felt like homework, this yeah. felt like school. Actual actual schoolwork. Yeah, yeah. like it's <laughs> it's it because there are boobies in that movie. Yeah. So I didn't feel like I'd watch that in high school. You didn't you didn't completely waste your time. <laughs> so <laughs> as I try to navigate these murky critical waters, yeah. Jason. Do I think this movie is a massive achievement? Yes. Yes. Do I think this movie has great acting? Yes. Is it something that I'll ever watch again? Absolutely. Probably not. No, not, no, no, you will watch it again. No, I force you to. No, I am not going to watch We're going to watch the 1989 Henry V. We're going to watch the 2012 Henry V. And then we're going to compare it with the 1944 Henry V. And then we're going to record 19 podcasts about it. None of that's going to (laughs) happen. I have a hard time with uh, this kind of... Especially... Like, reading it, like we said, is one thing. But listening to it and trying to, like, keep up as the movie is going. I had spark notes open. I'm not going to lie. And I going back, even going back and forth between that, I'm just like, holy moly. Yeah. Like, just take a breath. <laughs> it's so quick. <laughs> it's so rapid-fire. Di- the rapid-fire dialogue. Um, so, I mean, overall, I appreciate a mm-hmm. lot of this movie. I, I am kind of, like, astonished by some of the stuff they do in this movie. A lot of the stuff they do. More than I enjoyed it i enjoyed parts yeah. of it i'm not gonna say i yeah. didn't but uh, there's long stretches apparently this especially the scene uh near the end where henry is like wooing Catherine. that goes on for like 10 yeah, and, and minutes it, and, and it, you know a modern film would not have a scene like that at the end of the movie that took like 10 minutes to get through well and we just had a battle scene and then we have 30 more minutes of just yeah. nonsense like uh, oh shit he called it nonsense <laughs> somebody get the twitter box you take it up with shakespeare um I would be totally okay though. I mean, I'm not gonna. We're not gonna do this because we're talking about this list for now. Mm. But I would be totally okay with checking out the Kenneth Branagh one and seeing if if it's better. Yeah, honestly. But I think ultimately this one retains its spot because of the story surrounding it, because of the unique way it's made, yeah. and just because it's the like I said, it's the first successful Shakespeare adapt adaptation to film. Mm. I still think. The other Shakespeare movie on the list should have been something other than Olivier, mm. but that we'll get to that when we eventually talk about Hamlet. Jason it had something with Sir John Gilgold. Yes, is that uh, Gimli? No, no, that's John Rhys Davies. That's John Rhys Davies. You don't go fuck. on. You think John Rhys Davies was alive in the forties? I don't know. Are you alive in the forties? Uh, only in spirit. 
Um, so yeah, this movie, yeah, yeah, Shakespeare. I've I've read a lot of Shakespeare through school and stuff, and you know, I've never really super been into it, but and despite the you know the the language barrier, really, that it is, it feels I, like you're watching a movie in a different language. I love what this movie is. I love how it looks. I love Laurence Olivier. It is so fucking beautiful. Like, I cannot... I cannot tell you how beautiful this movie looks. How good the costumes look. How colorful everything is. The the way the ground looks. The green grass. The blue sky. The model at the beginning of the movie. Everything. The Globe Theater itself. And even the audience and stuff. Everything looks right. Everything looks like... I, I mean, I could say it's a, like a stereotype of medieval because everything was probably really dirtier in real medieval life. But my God, this movie is a masterpiece as far as like the way it looks. Now, we can argue about whether you like the story or not or if you're a Shakespeare guy. I thought the story is great. And as I said earlier, if Ridley Scott wanted to remake this like Kingdom of Heaven and do like kind of a more modern straight take on the story of the, this king, I would be all in. Well, Jason... I think we made peace with this. Made peace with this, we folks. Can, Check it out. It's on Criterion DVD and Blu-ray. As we stealthily insert it into the list that we've been individually ranking mm-hmm. so far. Which, by the way, I'm, remember, after we get through 20 of these bad boys, we will do an episode, uh, our own little mini awards thing. Yeah, we'll, we'll, and we'll show rank them, too. Yeah. See which wins. Best actor. Mm-hmm. So, but now is the time on this po- here podcast. Now is the time, dear brothers. <laughs> where I am nervous as fuck. All right. Every time. Because we are going to roll the dice, Jason. We few. We happy few. We band of brothers. Yes. We're a whole band, all two of us. You know, there's actually, we have a band behind us getting ready. In case we ever need live music, we haven't yet. They're always there. But we pay them to be there. They're there every single episode, but we haven't had reason to use them yet. I don't know why we don't pay them salary, because hourly wages was a mistake. Cost way more for us, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But we're going to, I'm going to roll the dice. This is my turn. It is your turn. And what's going to happen is we we have the BFI Top 100 list open and ready at the... At the ready. It's at the ready. It's ready to go. Absolutely. And whatever number I roll on this dice, it will correspond with the movie that we will do next week. Oh, I don't know if I can handle train spotting this week, but let's see what happens. Ooh. Right on the head. You want me to come on them dice? You don't want me to come on the dice. 70. 70. All right, let's check it and see what we got. Our movie for next week, number 70 on the BFI list, is Goldfinger. Goldfinger. Mr. Goldfinger. What is this movie? I've never heard of it. This is a movie about a character named James Bond. Oh, Jimmy Bond. Absolutely. This is often considered the best. James Bond movie, maybe the best, or at least the best Sean Connery James Bond movie. Uh, it's the one of two James Bond movies on this list, and it's the lower ranked. It one. is the lower ranked one, surprisingly. Which we'll talk about. We'll talk about when we get to Doctor No. Hold but, uh, your peace. Hold your peace. Hold your peace. But no, I'm excited. I've seen Goldfinger oh, in a while. I this, like Goldfinger. I'm excited because this couldn't be any different, yeah. any more different than what we just did. You may well. We'll see what you think. Because I mean, these are these, these movies were made in a different time, Brendan. Have you seen Goldfinger before? Yes. Has it been a while? Not too, too long. Okay. Well, we're going to have fun with this one, I think. We're going to talk about it. Yeah. And, uh, well, okay. Goldfinger next Goldfinger, week. Goldfinger, ladies excited. and gentlemen. Number yes, 70. Me too. Sweet. 
Before we go, just want to let everyone know you can uh, you can follow us on social media. You can check us out on Facebook. Just search for Screen on Country. And you can also follow us on Twitter at BFI underscore pod. You can also follow Jason on Twitter at... Jason D. McLeod. That's M-A-C-L-E-O-D. Because he is Scottish. Like Connor McLeod, the Highlander. Exactly like that. Jason has also lived forever. Who wants to live forever? You are today's Freddie Mercury. Thank you. Wait. Um, anyway, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So that, that's all our, you know, our info. But for now, for this week, yeah. we're done. We're done. We're out. So, so I want to say, God save the queen. God save the screen. For screen and country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. Thou hast spirited me. Is that right? He I shrugged. Don't I don't remember. The end? found yourself scrolling through the recommended movies on streaming services and wondering if any of those are worth your time, I'm here to help. Hi, I'm Erica, host of Customers Also Watched, a podcast about movies on Amazon Prime. I started with one movie from my own watch list, and from there, each episode, I grab a friend or two, and we discuss a movie from the Customers Also Watch list of the previous episode's movie. Follow on Twitter at CAW Podcast, and Facebook or Instagram under Customers Also Watched. Available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and Podbean. See you down the rabbit hole. Latest time, let's check our cue, baby. Pair it with a couple brews, baby. We love your movies. We love the bad ones, too. So we watch them all and pass their lessons on to you. Oh, yeah. Everything I learned from movies helps to make life a little bit groovy. With a one last plot holes and gratuitous boobies. It's time to get busy with your friend Steven Izzy at eilfm.podbean.com